Remember last week we were looking back at some early church history, maybe not something that you've spent a lot of time in in your lifetime. I had several people say to me afterwards, I've been a Christian for this many years and I've never really studied the Didache. Maybe I've heard of it, didn't even know how to pronounce it, but there are some good lessons to be learned in the early church history. And so as we spend, this is the second of three weeks in the first couple centuries after Christ. It's not scripture, but it is still very valuable for us. If you remember, I had said, why should we study church history? The first reason was that it's a historical religion. We stand, as it were, we're midgets standing on the shoulders of giants, men and women of faith who have lived before us and who have sought to please God and figure out how his commands specifically applied in their, in, in their lifetime. And then also that the writings from the early church leaders, which we saw were called the church fathers or sometimes the patristics, are very valuable for us to show how our faith developed in those first critical decades and centuries after Christ went back, after the apostles and prophets left the scene, after the scripture was completed, the canon. And so I I said that they are us, but in a different time. They are us, but in a different time. Now, the different time, that may be what, you know, catches in your throat a little bit. Last week, we, we mentioned some words that you don't perhaps hear that often in Baptist churches. Words like tradition, bishop, catechumen, Eucharist. And if you come from a tradition, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, some strains of Lutheran and Presbyterian churches, those might remind you of where you used to be, not where we are today. And it's understandable if that wasn't exactly what you were expecting to hear yesterday morning. I wanted to, I ran out of time last week, I wanted to just briefly look at something, one of those words called liturgy. I mentioned it last week because the Didache has several prayers that it tells its readers, pray this prayer before communion, pray this prayer during communion, pray this after, pray this here, pray this then. And you know, we don't have prayers that we pray at certain times. It's a beautiful piece of uh, stained glass from a Lutheran church in Atlanta. And so I wanted to look at the, both the positives and the negatives of liturgy. And one of the biggest positives is that it connects us with the previous generations who used the same words in their meetings. Well, why the same words? Well, because liturgy is set forms for corporate worship, prayers, responsive readings, reciting creeds like the Apostles' Creeds, and so forth. Uh, It often involves a scripted order for the entire service. Every week we know we're going to stand at this time, say this prayer together, then sit down, and it can be a little intimidating for a visitor because everyone else knows when to stand up and when to sing and what to say, and, and I don't really know what to do. But it connects us, if we use a liturgy today, with previous generations who use those same words, that we feel a, uh, an organic connection with them because they're believers who prayed those same prayers, who recited the Apostles' Creed thousands of years ago. 
and we stand in a line, as we said, with them. But also, an orthodox liturgy embraces rich doctrine and it avoids heresy. Think about it. Someone like Pastor Ken or Pastor Matt, they do a terrific job. But if they get up here week after week after week, and they're saying thousands of words a week in their prayers, in their teaching, there may be times that they would be the first ones to say that something came out not quite right, where they maybe have to double back and say, that wasn't quite what I meant to say. Or maybe you just heard it, and you say, what, did they really mean what I thought they said? And you have to go back and get clarification. When we're saying a scripted prayer, an Apostles' Creed or something like that, that has been recognized as orthodox, that's been vetted by God's word, we can read that and know that it is true. It is right. It gives correct doctrine. We don't have to worry about someone, a false teacher getting up here and saying something, slipping something in their prayer that's going to pull us aside, or maybe even someone who loves God but misspoke in their words. Those are the positives. But as you can see, there are several negatives of liturgy as well, several dangers to be aware. Uh, The first is that worship can become merely about the external, not the internal. This is uh, probably the critical danger of liturgy, is that as people come, they stand, they sit, they follow the same prescribed forms every week, it can lose its power. Prescribed order may prevent spirit-guided flexibility. What if there was uh, a death in the church? What if there's uh, something key like an election coming up and the pastor wants to change? You know, what we did today, having the prayer time after the video instead of before. I don't know about you, but as we prayed for those martyrs after having watched that video, after having that uh, guided into our thoughts, it was more meaningful to me. I was fully in tune with Matt as he prayed for martyrs, for those who are suffering for our faith around the world. But you wouldn't have that freedom with a liturgy that set the order that had to be followed every week. And then the last is that overexposure to orthodox words can lead to desensitization. And you've seen that, haven't you? If, you? if we sang the same song every single week, after a few weeks, you would just mouth the words while you thought about what you're going to be having for lunch later. It's just the way it is. When we repeat things too much, remember the Apostle Paul urged the Christians, don't use vain repetitions like the heathen do. So there's a fine line somewhere between something that's comfortable, that's orthodox, that's familiar to us, but it can cross the line to over-familiarity, to where it loses its power. So just some of the positives and negatives of liturgy. It's not a bad word, but it is something that needs to be taken and done carefully. This week, it's our second week. We looked last week at the Didache. We're going to examine First Clement, the epistle from Rome to Corinth, First Clement. And as I did last week, We're going to look at the details of that before we get into the heart of what Clement had to say to his readers and what I think it says to us today as well. Written by Clement of the Roman Church. If you read through 1 Clement, it's about 30, 31 pages. It's a long epistle, but very rich. You will never see the name Clement. He never identifies himself. And so 
That is something that we have had to glean from other external historical sources. And several of them say that this man was an elder in the Roman church, probably existing somewhere between 70 A.D. and 140 A.D. The date of 96 A.D. is often associated with that because there was a persecution in Rome, from what we know, uh, led by the emperor in 95-96 of Christians in Rome. And so the very first part of Clement says, because of the sudden and repeated misfortunes and reverses that have happened to us. But I don't want that 96 to stick in your mind as the only date. Really think of somewhere between 70 and 140. We don't have good evidence either for the writer, we don't know much about him, or the date. It's just not important, necessarily. It is early, that's, that's the thing to keep in mind. It was written to the Corinthian church. The writer, I'm just going to call him Clement, was representing the Roman church as they wrote to the Corinthian church. So instead of Paul writing to a church, we have a church writing to another church. And the purpose was to intervene and to help the Corinthian congregation resolve their conflict. As we'll see, the Corinthian church was involved in strife, in dissension. And we don't know how this letter turned out. We don't know if the Corinthian congregation listened, if they fixed their problem. The only clue we have is that uh, back in 170 or 180, the leader of the Corinthian church then, a man, uh, Dionysius, I think was his name. I think that's how to pronounce it at least. Dionysius wrote that we still read the letter from Clement, probably, you know, 80 or 100 years later. So the hope is that the Corinthian church did listen, did take that advice, and did heal the schism that had really uh, torn them apart. The structure. The structure of First Clement, if you're interested, 1 through 3 is the introduction. The next 35, 36 chapters talk about God's general will. And Clement is very, very concerned with order, with harmony. And then the next section is he specifies that. He doesn't start just give general examples of God's will for order and harmony, but he talks about how the Corinthian church can implement order and harmony in their body, how they can fix the problem that was ripping them apart. And then chapters 59 through 65, there's several prayers, a phenomenal prayer that I do hope you'll read, and then some concluding remarks. I'll just say this, about one quarter of First Clement is citations of the Old Testament. There's huge chunks, the entire chapter of Isaiah 53 and other parts of, of God's word we can see that the writer had a, a, a deep love and appreciation for God's word. He cited that as his authority. Much like the writers of the Didache, they looked to God's word for their authority. It wasn't inherent in themselves. They weren't ordering people to do something because they were over them. And Clement as well, the Roman church was not over the Corinthian church. But he cited scripture. He made an appeal to them. He also cited the first letter from Paul to the Corinthians and several other letters of Scripture. Why is First Clement valuable? Why are we even looking at this? Why not some of the others? 
Well, I'll quote a couple of the early verses from First Clement. He goes to the heart of the issue, the strife, the dissension that that church had. Clement says, all follow the lusts of their evil heart, inasmuch as they have assumed that attitude of unrighteousness and ungodly jealousy. Pastor Ken is very good, very good about pointing back to the heart. Where does strife come, where does strife come from? Where do the evils that we face often come from? They come from our selfish hearts, our divided hearts. And Clement is very clear to say that we also write these things, dear friends, not only to admonish you, but also to remind ourselves. For we are in the same arena and the same contest awaits us. Clement wasn't setting himself up as the authority. He wasn't ordering the Corinthian church, you need to follow me, you need to listen to me. Clement wasn't an apostle, and the Roman church, at least at this time, wasn't over the other churches. But he was making an appeal. He was saying, look, the problem of the heart is general to all of us. We all struggle with selfishness, and it can lead to the same arena, the same contest. We could be facing dissension and disunity in our ranks just like you are. We're not better than you. It's a problem. Whenever people get together, there's strife, there's conflict. And so I'd like to look at three aspects of First Clement, three themes, if you will. The first is the problem of dissension. We'll see that Clement is not going to give us the ingredients of what caused that dissension in the first place. We may wish, wish for more information But as was part of the custom, part of the style of uh, rhetorical letter that he was sending, he wasn't concerned about the past. He was concerned about making it right. How can I help you to fix your problem and to resolve this issue? So the phenomenon of strife itself was what was bothering Clement. Then the presuppositions for the solution. What are the things that Clement is going to emphasize to help this Corinthian church heal their schism. And then finally, the proposal for the solution. Interpersonal strife at Corinth was the problem. Not again, right? Paul wrote to the Corinthian church two letters about some of the strife and some of the other problems that they had. And here we see 40, 50, 60 years later, maybe, some of the same type of problems cropping up. Even when our church is doctrinally pure, because it doesn't appear that the issue at Corinth was heresy. It was interpersonal conflict, envy, strife. And I think this goes to prove that even when our doctrine is pure, we can still have problems, serious problems that need to be resolved, that need to be fixed. Just because your doctrine is right doesn't mean all is well in your body, in your church. So we want to look at the problem. Let me quote several passages to give you an idea of what was happening here. From this came jealousy. This is after Clement spends a couple chapters actually praising the Corinthian church. But then he goes on to say that selfishness, that root sprang up. And from this came jealousy and envy, strife and sedition, persecution and anarchy, war and captivity. So people were stirred up, those without honor against the honored, 
those of no repute against the highly reputed, the foolish against the wise, the young against the old. The Corinthian church had split down the middle. They had deposed some of their elders, some of their leaders, who Clement says these men were blameless. In fact, I think that's the next slide. We see that you have removed certain people, their good conduct notwithstanding, from the ministry that had been held in honor by them blamelessly. And as if you read through the whole book of First Clement, the whole epistle, you'll see that there were a number, a small number of people, it says younger people, who had rebelled against the leaders of the church. And they had gotten enough support from the church that the church as a whole had deposed, had taken these renowned, blameless, honorable men out of their position. And that bothered Clement. He said, these people didn't deserve the treatment you gave them, but you took them out of their leadership at the urging of a few rabble-rousers. It is disgraceful, dear friends. Yes, utterly disgraceful and unworthy of your conduct in Christ that it should be reported that the well-established and ancient church of Corinth, because of one or two persons, probably a bit of an understatement, is rebelling against its presbyters. There was a small faction who, for whatever reason, we're not told why, didn't like the leadership and got some of them kicked out so that they could, we assume, get more of a position of power and influence. Do we ever see that happening in our churches today? Oh boy. Have you ever heard of a church split? Have you ever been part of a church split? The root causes for that, selfishness, envy, ambition, are the same types of things that caused the church split at Corinth. And this was a damaged church, as we'll see. It needed help. And so the Roman church cared so much about this that they not only sent this letter, but they actually, as we'll see, sent representatives to help arbitrate the dispute and resolve the dissension. Doctrine wasn't the issue. So as we'll see, Clement makes peace and harmony and order the overarching theme of his letter. He reminds them how Paul corrected their disunity back in 1 Corinthians 3. He quotes that letter, says, You back then were following Paul and Apollos and Peter. And some said, We're really spiritual. We follow Christ. And Clement said, the same problems then are what are plaguing you now. What is it with you people? Why can't you get along? Why can't you have unity in Christ? Why can't you have order? Order was very key. And I'm going to give several reasons why I think, why did the Roman church even bother writing across the Mediterranean, writing from a Roman culture to a Greek culture in Corinth? Why did they even bother to engage in this cross-cultural inter- intervention. Well, I think the first couple uh, reasons are more minor, but they're there. The Roman mind very highly esteemed the very office of a leader. You deserved respect because of your office. Kind of like today, we, will, we should call the leader 
of our nation, President Obama. We should give him the respect due because of his office. The very, and the Romans emphasize that even more than we do today. Because you had the office, you deserve my respect. And peace and harmony existed when the establishment was maintained. When the ruled submitted to the rulers. Type, uh, rebellion was not popular in Rome. And for the layman in a Greek colony to be rebelling against their, in this case, spiritual leaders, had to make the Romans very nervous. Because as you know, the Romans put down rebellions across the empire when they came up. And so, I would say these are more minor reasons. The Roman mind was all about order. The Pax Romana, the Roman peace, existed because the Roman army enforced that peace. Because if you submitted, there's going to be peace. If you try to start an uprising, then there's going to be disorder. There's going to be war, as we saw, anarchy, strife, sedition. But I really think the main part, the main reason for the Roman intervention is, wow, that just didn't even show up. Well, I'll just uh, summarize it for you. The Roman church, Clement, at one point goes on to say to the Corinthian congregation, what you are doing, the strife that you have stirred up, has not only reached our ears, but has reached the ears of those who disagree with us, meaning unbelievers. And Clement says, you blaspheme the name of Christ because of your disunity. So I think that is the most severe and serious reason because this notable church that had existed for many years is one of the first large churches established outside of uh, Judea. And this church that everyone knew was split down the middle again. They had removed their leaders. Their factionalism was damaging their reputation for Christ. And that's why I believe the Roman church intervened because it was so serious that they had to reach out and not make an accusation, not make a command, but with concern to make an appeal to this fellow church, to their sisters and brothers in Christ, to heal the schism so that it wouldn't bring disrepute on the name of Christ. So we looked at the ingredients of that dissension And now the presuppositions for a solution. This occupies the bulk of Clement's letter as he looks at many sources, primarily the Old Testament, to show how peace and harmony, order, is valuable to God. How it is a key component of his universe, of his creation. And as such, it should be a key component of a church, of a body of Christians. Examples to follow and avoid interesting many many examples i'll just name a couple of them it gives in chapter 7 and 8 examples of repentance these are the three key ingredients that will help resolve this problem repentance obedience and humility for an example of repentance it gives nineveh when jonah preached to nineveh those people repented they believed that their city would be destroyed they knew the wickedness of their hearts and their lifestyle, and they repented. Chapters 9 through 12 give evidence, examples of obedience. 
Clement is very, very key to urge his people, his readers, obey God. You need to repent. You need to obey. I think it's interesting. An example of obedience is Lot's wife. Remember what happened to Lot's wife? As they were leaving Sodom and Gomorrah, not unlike the situation that would have happened at Nineveh, Sodom and Gomorrah did not repent. And Lot's wife, he and his wife were leaving, were fleeing. And she looked back against God's orders. She disobeyed and became a pillar of salt. And so she was not spared. And Clement draws an interesting parallel. He said, because she did not obey in harmony. She was not in harmony with her husband, I think is the exact quote. Harmony, really? Order? Is that there in that account? Well, Clement is looking at that, and he looks at many other passages of Scripture, and he draws out the harmony, the order, the peace that was necessary for obedience to occur. And then chapters 13 through 18 give examples of humility. The most beautiful and best example of humility is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Clement seizes on that. He gives the entire text of Isaiah 53 and how the Lord was humble and went to his death as a sheep before its shearers, as a lamb to be slaughtered. And the example of Christ, there's multiple ones, but the example of Christ, the humility, the obedience, Christ didn't need to repent. But those are the three key ingredients that the Corinthian church would need to put their church back together. And in uh, 8, 2, and 5, 9, 1, and 56, 1, I won't quote those for you, but each of those says that these three things, repentance, obedience, and humility, are God's will. They are God's will. Clement isn't trying to just write a persuasive letter. He's not just trying to get them to feel guilty. He's trying to point them back to the Lord that they were abandoning through their strife, through their dissension. It is God's will that you repent. It is God's will that you obey. It is God's will that you be humble. And those are the things that you're going to need to heal this strife. Clement's overarching goal of peace and harmony, as I said, is achieved through order. Just a couple examples. He talks about the angels and several other things that obey God, that follow in order and harmony. These are some of the better ones, I think. He says, the heavens move at his direction and obey him in peace. And he goes on to describe, for several chapters really, the wonders of the universe. Remember, this is a man who didn't have a telescope. He couldn't see everything that we can see today. But the ancient people understood how remarkable it was that they could still chart a course in the ocean for their boat by the stars. They could count on the sun rising every single day. Unfortunately, that's why you see sun, moon, stars worship from many unbelieving people throughout history. But Clement can point to general revelation and say, look, even the heavens are ordered. They exist in harmony. The implication is, if the stars can do that, then you need to do that as well. Let us serve as soldiers, brothers, with all seriousness under his faultless orders. And he goes on to describe 
perhaps looking out the window in Rome at legions of soldiers marching in perfect order. Look, the soldiers, if they're not ordered, if they're not in harmony, then they're going to be wiped out on the battlefield. Especially, think of Roman battle formations, how critical it was that they all worked together as a team. He said, look, you just have to look at the soldiers that walk past your, your street, the ones who are headed out to battle. They're in order. They understand the value of unity and harmony working together. Everything God has set up reflects his harmonious, peaceful nature. Nothing in God ever conflicts. He never has to question himself. He never doubles back on his will. One commentator says of orderliness, it is the functional principle of any human association and even more of a group of believers. Both harmony and orderliness have one basic justification and reason for being. God wills them. You have to get into the Roman mind a little bit to appreciate how critical, how valued peace and order and harmony were. But we shouldn't be so quick to dismiss that as just a product of that culture. God is a God of order. And when his people are tugging against each other and bickering and showing envy and jealousy, you don't have to read a whole lot in your New Testament to see that that goes against God's will, that he wills his people to love each other, to submit one to another, and to pull together in the same direction. There's the ingredients of the problem, the presupposition for the solution, and then Clement's proposal for the solution. One person can destroy unity, but it takes the whole group to restore it. And that's what Clement proposes here. First of all, he said that the deposed leaders had to be restored. This was an absolute essential. Let the flock of Christ be at peace with its duly appointed presbyters. It is right for us to bow the neck and, adopting the attitude of obedience, to submit to those who are the leaders of our souls. Fighting against the ones that God has appointed to lead you to shepherd you is counterproductive. It's counterintuitive. God has put those people in place to help you. And if you're grading against that, if whenever Pastor Ken says something, if he sends an email to you and you grind your teeth, if Pastor Matt advises you on a matter and you leave shaking your head, God, he just doesn't know what he's saying. I, I, think, I, I think I can handle this myself. I, I gave them a listen. Now I'm going to do it my way. We're harming ourselves. If you badmouth your leaders, well, you know, some of those deacons I like, but that one, I don't even know how he got in here. He doesn't do anything for me. You're harming not only yourself, but the entire body. That type of dissension is toxic. Second step, though, after these leaders were restored to the rightful position was that the rebels needed to submit and repent. And I think it's interesting, not only the ones who had fomented this strife, the ones who stirred everyone else up, but the ones in the pew who went along. Yeah, I guess that sounds right. Yeah, I guess I've never really gotten that much out of that one. 
yeah, I don't really like the way that they dress. They've never really been that nice to me. So yeah, let's just get rid of them. The people who went along with it. Let us ask that we may be forgiven. And those too who set themselves up as the leaders of rebellion and dissension ought to look to the common hope. And I want to make the point here, Clement is not concerned with assigning blame and castigating these people who'd gone astray. He wants them to be restored. And as you read First Clement, you'll see his heart reaching out to them. Yes, he comes down hard on them, but he wants them to do what's right. He wants them to be restored. There is hope, a common hope of forgiveness if they will bend their knee and submit as they should. And then third step was that the church needed to move on in unity even without the rebels, if it came to it. It says, submit to the presbyters and accept discipline leading to repentance. It is better for you to be found small but included in the flock of Christ than to have a preeminent reputation and yet be excluded from his hope. There's a sword there, isn't there? There's a carrot at one end that says, look, there is hope. There is restoration that is possible. But you may have to be disciplined if you won't bow the knee. You may have to be excluded from the body of faith. And I think it's interesting. Uh, another part that Clement goes on to say, he kind of paints a rosy picture of exile, perhaps from a Roman perspective. Remember in the New Testament when Jesus and Paul talked about church discipline, it was something shameful, an extreme step to be taken to exclude someone from the body, to shame them, to make them realize how wrong they were. And I won't read it, but Clement actually compares, he, he exhorts the rebels, if necessary, you need to exile yourself. You need to voluntarily leave to preserve the greater good, the health of the body. He even compares it to Esther, someone who sacrificed herself or was willing to for the good of her people. I may be painting, uh, looking through rose-colored glasses a little bit, but the fact is, that whether voluntarily or involuntarily, if those people couldn't live in peace and harmony with the community of faith, they, they needed to be gone. It wasn't worth it. So those were the three key steps that Clement proposed. And I think as we see those, ingre- those presuppositions of obedience, repentance, and humility, and you see these steps, it's really nothing special. Nothing that you probably couldn't have read through your New Testament had gotten. But I do think Clement does a good job, very theological work. He does a good job of pointing out what to do when a church is breaking apart at the seams. What's at stake there and what they can do. But I'd be remiss if I didn't point out a few of the weaknesses in First Clement. I will say briefly that we are going to try and order some of the books. I neglected to bring it today, but it's a brown book called The Apostolic Fathers by Michael Holmes, English, a good English translation of these and many other works. And we're going to try to have some available at a discounted rate for you to purchase. I really do think it'd be valuable for you to read through these works on your own. There's other valuable ones in there, letters from Polycarp, letters from Ignatius, really good stuff for you and your family to read through in your devotional time. But there are weaknesses. There's a reason why these 
have not been put on the level of Scripture. I'll just mention a few of these. Clement, it, it seems, times it seems to have a more starry-eyed view of the Levitical system than the author of Hebrews, than Paul. The New Testament portrays the Levitical system, the law of Moses, as something that's not on us today. It's been fulfilled. It's been set aside. It still reveals God. We still see God's nature. We see human nature as you read through your Old Testament. But the law is not for us today. And I do think Clement at times blurs the lines between Israel and the church. And you might see that as you read through that. He may have over-delineated the roles of laymen and clergy as well. Those in the pew, so to speak, are urged over and over again to subordinate to those behind the pulpit. Again, not a bad thing in and of itself. The New Testament does teach respect for church leaders, but there's also inequality expressed in the priesthood of the believer. And Clement at one point says, the layman is bound by the layman's rules. And he holds so strongly to the authority of the church leader, that office itself. Remember, the Roman idea, you need to respect them because of their office. And that's true. But you can see how this would develop in the coming centuries into an idea where there's two classes of Christians. You have the people in the pulpit who you don't question them, and then you have the common folk in the pew who their job is just to come, listen, and give their money. And that's not a biblical model. I don't think Clement is there yet, but I do think some of the things he says lead to that problem as probably flourished best in Roman Catholicism. And then, perhaps most seriously, I'm not sure I completely agree with what some have said, Clement may have opened the door for an understanding of salvation as something earned instead of something bestowed. Something earned instead of something bestowed. You read a verse like this, it's terrific. Let us fix our eyes on the blood of Christ being poured out for our salvation. It won for the whole world the grace of repentance. But then he goes on to say that it was merely something that extended repentance as an option. Grace provided the option. And as we understand it, there are two definitions of grace. And the first, I'm quoting a man who had spent some time in this, one must be deemed worthy of it before he, one receives it. And in some cases, one must be perfect before one receives it. Do you see the difference there? Is grace something unmerited that God extends to those who are mired in sin? Or is it something that, as, as a transaction, he gives you because he's pleased with what you're doing? It is completely God's initiative in Christ to give it freely by surprise and permanent. But you sometimes see hints in Clement where he sees grace as, if you obey, then God will be gracious to you. Let us do all the things that pertain to holiness. Let us therefore join with those to whom grace is given by God. Is it grace because God shone the light of his son, he regenerated their hearts completely of his own work? Or is it grace because you're doing the things that pertain to holiness along the way? It's an interesting question, one that I'm not able to resolve, but I do think there are some reasons why Clement is not considered scripture, even though by far the vast majority of it is extremely valuable. I'm going to close with reading a part of Clement's prayer near the very end. He has a very high view of authority. 
of the offices of those who lead. And I wonder, in the wake of the election, this last Tuesday, if some of you have spent the week grumbling, you didn't like a law that was passed. You didn't like the state representative that got reelected. You don't like the way that things shook out on the national scene, and you're dissatisfied with it. And sometimes that dissatisfaction can turn into complaining, can turn into dissension. Listen to what Clement says. We render obedience to your almighty and most excellent name and to our rulers and governors on earth. You, Master, have given them the power of sovereignty through your majestic and inexpressible might, so that we, acknowledging the glory and honor that you have given them, may be subject to them, resisting your will in nothing. Grant to them, Lord, health, peace, harmony, and stability, so that they may blamelessly administer the government that you have given them. For you, Heavenly Master, King of the ages, give to human beings glory and honor and authority over the creatures upon the earth. Lord, direct their plans according to what is good and pleasing in your sight, so that by devoutly administering in peace and gentleness the authority that you have given them, they may experience your mercy. Are you going to be able to pray for health, peace, harmony, and stability for our elected leaders? I hope that you can. Let's close in prayer. Lord and Father, thank you again for people of God who lived just a few years after the close of Scripture, who wrote from their hearts, from your word, and urged other people, other Christians, to follow you, to follow your will, and to be at peace with one another. And I ask for that for our church as well. Give us harmony, Lord, uh, unity and purity together. We seek both those, for it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.